Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by the UCLA Extension Writers Program, the largest open enrollment creative writing and screenwriting program in the nation. At UCLA Extension, you can take courses in novel writing, short fiction, memoir, personal essay, poetry, playwriting, writing for the youth market, publishing, you name it. And you can also take screenwriting courses, both feature film and television. The various classes are taught by top-level instructors who have actually walked the walk, publishing books and producing films and television shows. The program features almost 500 courses annually, both online and on-site, at beginner, intermediate, and advanced levels, with evening, weekend, and daytime options as well. The program also features certificate programs in feature film, television writing, fiction, and creative nonfiction, manuscript and script consultations, writing competitions, free events, nine-month master classes, mentorships, scholarships, and friendly and knowledgeable advisors. For more information, call 310-825-9415. That's 310-825-9415, or visit them on the web at uclaextension.edu slash writers, or check them out on Facebook and the Twitter. This is a writer's program. You can learn to write better. Go and do it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is two complete strangers engaging in collegial banter. This is something of a remedy for loneliness. My guest today is Ben Fountain. He is the author of Brief Encounters with Che Guevara. Uh, that's a debut story collection that won the Penn Hemingway Award. And now he has just published his debut novel to great critical acclaim. It is called Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. It is available from Echo in hardcover. And it's a terrific novel, a terrific satire. Very excited to have Ben on the program. And he and I are going to be talking about all sorts of stuff in just a minute. And I can assure you uh, that you don't want to miss this one. So a couple of orders of business here before we get started. First of all, the Nervous Breakdown Literary Experience uh, is happening uh, in New York City in conjunction with Emergency Press coming up on May 28th. And uh, for those of you who aren't aware, the Nervous Breakdown is an online literary uh, magazine and community uh, that I run, and uh, we have these live events 
called The Literary Experience. And we've got one coming up with Emergency Press at a place called Public Assembly in Williamsburg. And that's at 70 North 6th Street. And showtime is at 7 p.m. Edgar Oliver, Elna Baker, Lenore Zion, and Chad Ferries will be reading from their work. Five bucks at the door, full bar, good times. Be sure to check it out. Uh, Otherwise, uh, I did get some mail that I'd like to share with you briefly. An email in particular from a young woman named Christine. Uh, So I figured I'd read it to you in a couple of parts. So here's the first part. Dear Brad, I recently discovered your podcasts and have been listening for a few weeks now. I just finished listening to the one with David Reese and just have to say, wow. I had heard of his book but didn't really know anything about him. And when I started listening to your interview, I thought he was funny and smart, if a little dark, and smooth. I liked him. But when he started talking about bullying, and I found myself getting more and more uneasy, uh, on the one hand, it was cool that he just came out and owned it and said he was an asshole and all of that. But on the other hand, I could de- I could detect no remorse in how he was saying it. He seemed to be explaining it away with adolescent hormones or something. And it was the same tone that he used to talk about sports cars. Especially in the wake of the Romney stuff this week about bullying, I found it very creepy and thought, OMG, I've just been completely seduced by this smooth-talking, funny, smart sociopath. Ew, ew, ew. So I really appreciated you asking him how he processed it, if he felt any guilt about it, etc. And I thought it was done really well. Not aggressive, but not just letting it go either, because he seemed kind of done with it at the moment, and you could uh, could have easily moved on to something else. For a minute, I was afraid you would, and then I might not have been able to like your show anymore because it might have seemed like you were complicit with the bullying. Like, well, that's too bad, but let's not make the guest here uncomfortable. Or you could have gotten all righteous and judgmental, but just by asking uh, what he made of it now, I got to know that it did plague him for a number of years and all that, and I felt better again. Phew. So that's part one of the letter. Uh, And uh, here in the second part, She refers to my monologue at the beginning of the show and the agony that I went through while lying in bed trying to decide whether or not I should check my front door to make sure it was locked. And uh, how ultimately I decided to stay in bed, only uh, to be awakened later uh, by a dream. And in my dream, as you will recall, uh, if you heard that program, uh, the, the phone rang and I picked it up and it was me on the other end of the line calling myself, telling me in my sleep that the door was unlocked. So, you know, I was expressing my displeasure with my subconscious, and Christine uh, made efforts to address that as well. Here's what she says, quote, Also, I just want to comment on the thing at the end about your being disappointed with your subconscious. It occurred to me after listening to the interview that maybe you weren't supposed to check if the actual door was locked, but maybe your subconscious was warning you of psychic danger. Like maybe uh, you were warning yourself that you were going to be in the presence of a bully or something. I want you to uh, to let I want you to let your subconscious off the hook because it's doing a good job looking out for you. I know it's none of my business, but hey, you brought it up, so there's my two cents. Personally, I might still want to read David Reese's book, and I'd have a beer with him if invited. <laughs> but I don't think uh, he's someone you want to hang out with unguarded. I'm going to keep listening to the show. Thanks for doing it. Best wishes, Christine. So thanks, Christine. Uh, that's an interesting take on the uh, David Reese episode. He was definitely one of the more interesting interviews that I've done, and I'm glad I got to meet him in person. He he uh, he was a very nice guy, and he sort of warned me before we got started 
that uh, he wouldn't be making eye contact as he talked. So his eyes, uh, you know, throughout most of our conversation were pointed at the, at the floor, essentially. And uh, I do think that he, he probably was a very skilled bully in his day and still could be if he wanted to be. Uh, but I also tend to think that he's no longer that way. I think sociopath uh, might be taking it a bit far. And, uh, you know, the whole bullying thing, yeah, I'm sure he did it. He said as much himself, but uh, I I don't think today uh, he's engaging in that kind of thing, at least not to the same extent and with the same kind of intensity, and uh, at least not with most people. So uh, as for my subconscious, I appreciate the good thoughts. You know, I do like the idea of my uh, subconscious mind doing good work on my behalf. And I like the idea of it serving as a kind of protector rather than simply being a source of, you know, like neurotic annoyance. Uh, however, I should, I should say that I have not, to the best of my knowledge, been in the presence of a bully recently. Uh, there have been no threats. There have been no incidents to report, no verbal abuse, no physical abuse, nothing of that nature, which I suppose could you know, either mean one of two things. Uh, either it means, uh, you know, that the notion of my subconscious protecting me is meritless or maybe the fact that I have not been bullied actually confirms that my subconscious is doing its job and has somehow you know, helped me steer clear uh, of these sorts of situations and these sorts of people. I don't know. So uh, one last thing that I feel I should add. Uh, I had a dream just last night involving another phone call. Uh, I was interviewing someone in my dream, and that someone was Donald Rumsfeld, former uh, defense secretary Donald Rumsfeld. And I remember uh, talking to Donald Rumsfeld, and I remember... Uh, you know, I remember remembering that suddenly, oh my God, uh, I was missing a meeting that I had scheduled with a friend. So I'm in, I'm in the middle of this conversation with Donald Rumsfeld. I'm interviewing him for, I suppose the podcast and, uh, my phone rings and it's my friend and he's upset. He's asking me where I am. And I feel bad about the fact that I've missed our meeting. But at the same time, uh, I had scored this big interview with Donald Rumsfeld and I was peppering him with questions and he was being extraordinarily candid about his life and his motivations and so on. So I'm not sure exactly what to make of that uh, as far as my subconscious is concerned, Christine, but I do want to say thank you for listening and I appreciate your concern. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Um, well, I didn't grow up here. Um, I moved here when I was 25 years old out of law school, and um, I grew up in North Carolina, which is 
very much the South and a little bit of time I'd spent in Dallas before I came out here led me to believe that um that it was pretty similar to the place I'd grown up and um and uh after a certain amount of time here I began to realize no, it's really not at all like the place I grew up. Um it's uh and I think, you know, um American culture is, is becoming more and more like Dallas and, and I would say the parts of North Carolina where I grew up, I mean, they're more like Dallas um, you know, certainly than, than they were twenty five years old. It's the whole general ritzification of um American culture where everything goes more and more upscale and everything gets more and more consumerist and materialist and and more and more focused on money. But I think in Dallas, I mean, you know, I tell people, and I think there's some truth in this, Dallas is the most American city. Here you find the um, the purest strains of so much of what characterizes a certain aspect of mainstream America. Um, you've got, you know, evangelical capitalism. You've got... um. Uh, upscale upscale materialism and consumerism um it's uh, all very much about making money and having things um with a great big dollop of um of christianism thrown in there and uh um you know in new york you've got i mean certainly that's that's a you know you it's the center of the financial um industry in the united states and in some ways the world but there are other things going on in New York, and certainly L.A. is a very consumerist place, but you've got other things going on out there. You've got a vibrant art community and, and obviously the movie biz. And, um, you know, you go around the country, and, and um, it seems like most big cities, there are these these um, these leavening aspects. But in Dallas, man, it is, in my experience, it's all about the money. Well, and it's also, there, you know, this is going to seem like kind of a cheap adjective, but there's a bigness, you know, like to the approach. And, and, um, I find that like, you know, from the outside looking in anyway, there's like a, there's a certain, uh, bravado or lack of, uh, there's not an, um, there's no apology for the bigness. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like this cheerful, um, damn right kind of attitude, you know, that, well, I, I think that's an astute observation. I think, um, um and and maybe a good bit of the bravado comes from um lack of awareness of of any kind of different way i mean here i mean of course you know we're all going to be capitalists of course we're all free market evangelicals of course we all believe in in god and country and and the free market what else is there and um i think there there's very little awareness here um of that there can be different ways of living and that they can be just as legitimate as other ways um as as the Dallas way i mean as far as big goes i would say hell yes i mean it is all about big big cars big houses big hair big boobs big <laughs> bank accounts i mean i mean big 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 and and there's in a way there's an endearing lack of subtlety Right. Because I, um, find, I find myself, you know, because like everything you say, I'm sitting here nodding my head, but there's also a part of me uh, that is charmed by it. 
you know, uh, and, and it depends who it's coming from, obviously. You know what I'm saying? It's all in the delivery, but there's something about that sort of attitude, um, particularly when it's delivered in good cheer, uh, even if it might, you know, have uh, its strains of ignorance or whatever that is uh, sort of infectious and, and fun-loving or something, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it is what it is, um, and it doesn't make any pretense about being anything else. Um but uh and it can be charming and um the openness of it um can be endearing but i tell you don't mess with it right no. i mean if if you start to um uh put up obstacles or voice objections to it um you'll see a nasty side of it pretty quickly i bet i bet you know and and you know you say all this stuff about uh dallas and about texas and and um you know, obviously, I think there's a lot of truth to it. I think that it also, uh, and I think you'd probably agree with this, it speaks to the, the country as a whole, too. It's not like it's just uh, isolated there. It just might be loudest there or more uh, pronounced, you know. But it's certainly an attitude that I think is fairly pervasive through a lot of the country, you know. it's It finds its way. Yeah, I think so. I mean, like I said, I think here you get the pure strain. You get the um, pure, unadulterated um, mainstream America of God country and the free market. And, um, I mean, that's not to say that there are other elements here. I mean, there are some good writers here and there's some good artists and, and there's some good, um, theater here. And, and there are some, you know, some, uh, you know, genuinely inquiring thinkers here in academia and otherwise, but, um, but it's it, that kind of stuff is almost like Sama's dot in the Soviet Union, um, where where it's underground. But in this case, it's the free market. It's 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 the consumer culture that's pushed all that stuff um, virtually underground, and it exists below and way to the fringes of the mainstream culture. So how like I mean, just in terms of the mechanics of it, how does the how has the free market pushed it? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, how did how how, how has it happened? Like, I uh, I get it, but not quite. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. when, when you say that, like, what does it what does that mean in like at street level? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I mean, I think it starts with you know, first of all, just general awareness. I mean, what is the air you breathe? What's the weather you live in? And um, and here, it's um, it's all about the surfaces of things, um, you know, how big is your house, how big is your car. Um, uh, and uh, so, I mean, first of all, it's, it's, it's what people are presented with in their daily lives. And, and you know, where is your head for the, the 16 hours, 18 hours a day that you're awake? What are you thinking about and, and, and what are you confronted with? And then, you know, it can go to things like, um, well, I have a friend named David Searcy. He's, he's a really fine writer. He had two novels published by Viking in the early 2000s and, um, and has wandered in the wilderness a while, but his career's coming back around. He's got an essay in, in the current Paris Review, which is wonderful. But when his first, when his second novel came out, I went to a reading of his and, um, and there were six or seven people there, and um, I think may- there was maybe there were maybe one or two people who didn't know David, and the rest of us were were friends of David's. 
And I'm sitting there, and I'm looking at this tiny group, and I'm thinking, you know, we really are underground, number one. And number two, where in the hell is everybody else? <laughs> like here, here is here is a writer who's who's had his second novel published, you know, by Viking, which um, is you know obviously a, 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 um, a very well respected publisher, and nobody's here. And um, and also when E. L. Doctorow came to town, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, and he read at Borders, there were maybe twenty five people there, and I'm looking around and thinking, where is everybody? And um, I don't know. It's not just they Dallas. They weren't there. <laughs> um, I, I think, um, you know, as far as cultural, cultural events in Dallas go, people are m- much more drawn to high-profile stuff, um, established stuff, like stuff that goes on down in the Arts District at the Symphony or the big theaters down there. And that's fine. But, um, but just as far as that grass loo- grassroots kind of culture where – Stuff really happens in the work, the new work really gets done. Um, that's that's very much below the mainstream awareness. So, is there any okay? Because like that's that's it. That, that gives you kind of an interesting existence artistically there, and then it, not just artistically. Like I assume that um, you know you're at odds with like a lot of the prevailing ideology in the area. And so when you're, you know, that affects every aspect. You know, it affects uh, how you operate artistically. It affects how you operate socially. I mean, uh, like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, you, you're an odd, yeah. you're an oddball in your town. Um, was that a fair assessment? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I, yeah, it is a fair assessment, and um, and um, I mean, at times it's 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 kind of like living in in say in um, you know somewhere in northern Alaska. I mean, the climate is kind of harsh in certain ways, but. I can't say it's a bad way for a writer or an artist to live because, I mean, you're living in the belly of the beast, and it's always going to be in your face. You're always going to be challenged. Your assumptions are always going to be questioned. And so, I mean, it keeps you honest. I mean, you can't relax. You can't take anything for granted. I mean, you know, take, for example, Austin, Texas, which is, I think, is one of the great American cities. Um I think life would be a lot easier for someone like me in Austin. It's just much more congenial, and the culture is a lot looser and, and, and uh, I think, open-minded. But I wonder if I would become, like, a little bit soft and mushy in Austin, whereas here, um, you know, I, I've really got to pay attention to um, what's going on around me and, and what I'm thinking about and how I'm reacting to things. Yeah, I know. It's like because like you're in the belly of the beast, but you're in some ways like on the periphery of it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you're. No, man, I'm in the middle of it. You're in the middle. <laughs> but I mean, maybe... no, I live in I live in North da- in in North Dallas, which is about as white and bourgeois as, as you get in America. And um, um, no, I feel like I'm in the big middle of it. Do you ever have confrontations? Like, do you ever find yourself uh, challenging people uh, vocally? Like, you don't seem like somebody who would be. Uh, at least, you know, I'm just talking to you. I, I, I can't imagine that you would go around and start, you know, trying to pick fights. But do you ever find yourself in conversations where that happens? Um, well, you, you pick and choose your battles. Mm. Um, a lot of it has to do with context. I mean, I try not to embarrass my wife or my kids. <laughs> um, but I have embarrassed my wife and my kids. Um, 
And the older I've gotten, the um, less reticent I've become, I have to say, for better or worse. Um, but uh, I think that's good, though. I think that's good. Like, I always, yeah. I always like it. Like, I used to always say about uh, my grandmother that, like, you know, her, her – so much of her charm was rooted in the fact that she just had no filter and she told the truth and like you know agree or disagree um you knew you were getting what she thought uh, yeah and well you know for one thing it makes life more interesting yeah. i mean um uh and the older i get the more i'm willing and want life to be interesting and and you know you don't want to do it gratuitously just um um but uh you know when i when i am in a situation where um, you know, I feel like somebody's out of line or they're, or they're, or they're talking nonsense or, or, um, you know, I will challenge them on it sometimes nicely and sometimes not so nicely. Have you, can you, can you think of any, like, are there any anecdotes of a time where things didn't necessarily go so great? Because, um, let's see, I was at a, um, for some reason we got invited some years ago to, um, this reception at someone's house i don't know how we got this reception but it was for the establishment mayoral candidate who also happened to be a republican congressman and he was you know he was going to step down from congress if he won and, and be mayor of dallas and somehow we got um invited to this thing and so they had a question and answer session and everybody's lobbing him softball questions and and so um and it, this really wasn't a, 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 a you know, terribly um, provocative question, I didn't think. But I said, if you weren't running for mayor, who would you vote for and why? And the whole crowd went, ooh. <laughs> you know, it was like I was, I was, um, I was stepping outside, outside the polite parameters of the event. And he kind of grimaced. And, and then he gave, you know, this blah, blah, blah answer. Anyway, so after the event, we're... You know, you have to valet park, and so we're waiting for our car. And behind us, there's um, two couples, um, and uh, obviously it's a family, it's a family group. They're all dressed in in formal attire. Obviously, they're going to some you know fancy event, and they're telling racist jokes. And um, I mean, I couldn't believe it. It was such a an effing cliche. Right. I mean, to go to a Republican event in North Dallas. And then when you're waiting for your your car that's been valet parked, these um, you know uh, you know upper class white people are telling racist jokes. And I turned around. And I said, I can't believe you. What you're doing? Hello? Yeah. Oh, okay. You're still there? Yeah. The the phone did something funny. Anyway, um, you know, just I, I can't remember the outcome of it, but uh, that was one instance where where I didn't bite my tongue that you don't remember what they said they just i mean did they must have been a little bit i i think they um they just kind of drew back and shut up right um because obviously they were dealing with some kind of maniac and um <laughs> you know they didn't want anything to do with me yeah well no i mean my folks are from the south and i remember growing up like the racial stuff is still still there unfortunately and it's you know it's really there i think and it lives beneath the surface and it's sort of interesting to me um, like I want to say it was Bill Maher I was listening to, and he was talking about how like the new racism is denying that racism exists. Uh, mm. I think there's some truth to that. You know, it's just kind of like this denial. Like, oh no, that doesn't exist. Everything's fine. You know, 
seems like that's sort of shifted. Um, well, I think that's a, um, I think that's that's a good observation. I think there's a lot of truth in it. Yeah, the new racism is that that um, racism doesn't exist. Um, no, it's very much there. I think um, there is a lot of racism in this country, and and I'm still um, amazed that that Obama was elected president four years ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just. I hope it happens again. That's just me personally, but I don't, I don't know. I think it's gonna... Yeah, and and I don't think he would have been elected um, if the economy had hadn't melted down. Right. Um, and I think it took a crisis of 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 um, you know that proportion to wake people up. Well, and then let's uh, let's. I mean, it's it's actually a, a good uh, bridge to your new book, you know, because I think there is at least in its origin story. Um, you know, like a, a fairly significant political element in terms of how this thing was conceived. Like, is that fair to say? Um, yeah, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. So, yeah. Like, I mean, because it was like you know, you I've I've read you know I think I was prepping and I was reading that you were, uh, you know, sitting there and this is in the middle of the Bush years and the Iraq War and you're watching a football game, correct? <laughs> yeah. And and the and from that the novel was born. Yeah, it was um it was right after Bush was elected in 2004 and um and uh I guess I went into some some form of depression after that. Um you know, to me it was it, it was a it was just a, a real shock that um that after 4 years of of Bush and his administration that um, the majority of American people would endorse what had been going on for those four years, and um, and uh, you know I, I had to, I mean I had to face the fact that I didn't understand my country, um, this place where I was born and had lived my whole life. I, I really just did not understand it. Um, that's a that's a really that's a really stark way to put it. But I think that's I felt the same way. I mean it's like holy, that's a that's a. That's a difficult thing to confront. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, and in a way, it's it's um, you know, maybe I was asleep in some ways, and um, and and that's when I woke up and and really tried to start paying attention to the way things are, and and maybe try to think about why they are the way they are. But um, why are they the way they are? <laughs> <laughs> why are the, why are they the way they are? Yeah. Um, well, let's look at it this way. Maybe, maybe the two great tragedies of American history are the assassination of Abraham Lincoln and the assassination of John Kennedy. Um, maybe if we start there, um, the assassination of Lincoln, um, I think was maybe the tragedy in American history, and this is coming from a Southerner. Um, I love Abraham Lincoln. Like I, I do, I do too. I, I can, think he I, was. I, I think he was the greatest president. Um, I, I can read about him endlessly. Like I just as a, as a character, I love. Him. Yeah. You know, I love. Him. I mean, I think as a as a politician and as a uh, as a writer, you know, like he's. A, I, I tend to. I think writers often love Lincoln because he's got such a literary bent. But um, you just, you know, I don't know how much you've read of, uh, you know, like, like uh, the history books or the. Um, Oh gosh, uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin's book was great, and you know, there's all these different books I've read about him, but he just seemed like such a cool guy. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, um, well, I haven't read nearly as much as, as I should or, or want to about him, but um, but uh, just the um, the way he was leading the country into the um, into the post-war era, and he was talking about reconciliation and um, and I mean the vision he had for America was an incredibly generous um, and moral vision and. Um, when he was assassinated, uh, you know, so much that followed, I mean, um, uh, you know, Reconstruction was very short-lived and haphazard, and Reconstruction ended with the worst, with the most corrupt kind of political deal, um, namely if Rutherford Hayes, if the South agreed to throw its support to Rutherford Hayes as opposed to Tilden, then federal troops would lead the South. And um, and white supremacy would would rule the day, and um, I mean you know maybe the uh, maybe the you know ultimately why things are the way they are in America is slavery and racism. I mean if you take it all the way back and um, and the Civil War was fought because of slavery, um, the robber barons in the Gilded Age came out of the Civil War. Um, big business came out of the Civil War. Monopolies came out of the Civil War. Um, I mean, that was the era when the United States moved from, you know, this this more rural, agrarian sort of culture toward this industrial, um, you know, corporate capitalist sort of culture. And and I'm painting a really painting with a really big brush here and 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 making all kinds of generalizations, but. Um, but you asked me a big question, and so I'm trying. Um, no, you got, and, me, you got me going because I'm thinking to myself, like I always idealize. Uh, I have a you know a tendency to idealize the past, and I have a tendency to, to to idealize the foreign too. But like when I think of American history, if I had to pick a time that I think would have been very interesting uh, to live in, I would have loved to have lived in like the uh, like early to mid 19th century, and like what you were just saying, sort of. Uh, clarifies to me why that why that is like a more agrarian life, but there was also like I feel like at the mid nineteenth century there was also at least in certain places um, you know such a robust intellectual w- world that was happening. Uh, I, I I agree. I mean the transcendentalists and and also Marilyn Robinson um, went into this in in a lovely well actually it was a speech and it was reprinted in Harper's three or four years ago, and the title of it is A Great Forgetting. And um, she goes into this 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 um, very neglected era of American history um, and, you know, about the fact that in the 1830s and the 1840s and 50s, um, so many small liberal arts colleges sprung up across the Midwest. And, um, and, they had a moral mission, and it was the best kind of moral mission. And um, um, and they were integrated schools. Um, and uh, and so if we if we think of America as like, well, it's one continual progression towards enlightenment and um, equal opportunity for all, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, when you when you become aware of that history, you see it's not necessarily this progression. I mean, we can go backwards. We can forget. And I think America in 1890, in some ways, was was 
um, was a much more closed society, closed-minded and, and with less opportunity and, and less intellectual adventurism than it had been in 1840. Right. I can, I can, I can believe that, you know? And then just to make sure that we hit it, like you said, in addition, like the, the kind of the parallel tragedies in American history, one was Lincoln and we see what, uh, you know, what, what happened in the aftermath of his loss and then, uh, Kennedy, like, how do you tie that to our more recent history and, and, you know, where we are or how far we've moved forward or how far we've fallen back? Right. Well, um, I mean, Kennedy, I mean, I, I don't remember. I was too young, but I've seen the clips um, when he went on national TV to um, make the case for the Civil Rights Act. And um, he faced the American people and he said, I ask each and every American to look into his or her heart and think about what America truly stands for and um, and whether we can be the nation we want to be if you know people of color in this country aren't afforded the same rights that that you know the Anglo majority is and uh, I mean you know what a stark moment and uh, I mean, he was the leader of the progressive movement in American life for his generation, and um, he was cut down in the middle of it. In Dallas. Um, yeah, in Dallas. Um, and then the next two, you know, uh, uh, leaders of the progressive movement, Martin Luther King and then Robert Kennedy, obviously they were killed in 1968. And... Um, and Norman Mailer, at the toward the end of his book Miami and the Siege of Chicago, which that book is is based on his, his um, reporting from the polit- political conventions of 1968. He um, he makes the comment, you know, Miami is over, Chicago is over, it's on to the general election, um, uh, and you know, Chicago has been a disaster. And he says to someone or makes the comment. The progressive movement in American politics is dead for the next 40 years. And um, and Robert Kennedy was killed in early June 1968. Almost 40 years to the exact day, Obama clinched the Democratic um, nomination. Almost 40 years to the day. Um, so it was a quite prophetic pronouncement, and, and I think a tremendous amount of damage was done in those 40 years. Well, wow, it's interesting. And like, I wonder, you know, what the question that springs to my mind is why, you know what I'm saying? I, I think there's a lot of truth to what he said, but you wonder why, I mean, was it just simply the assassinations or was it, was it like a, a, a sapping of energy that, that, that caused, do you know what I'm saying? Cause on the one yeah. hand, you can see how that could drain all the energy and enthusiasm and life out of a movement, but it also could be uh, the counter could also happen, you know, where it might inspire people to action. So, you know what I'm saying? Like, so I wonder, yeah, yeah. wonder why for 40 years, um, you know, the cycles turned or, or is it one of those things in American political life and maybe in political life in general, anywhere where cycles just tend to play themselves out historically, you know, over so many years. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't put it down merely to, you know, some kind of mechanical cycle. Um, I don't know. I mean, um, Sometimes I have, you know, vague ideas and notions, but I haven't systematically sat down and studied it. Um, 
You know, probably a good part of it has to do with basic economics and the fact that um, that people become less open-minded. They become less intellectually or spiritually generous when their own well-being um, is threatened. And um, the American economy became a much different beast um, coming out of the Vietnam War. I mean, that war, um, in some ways, I mean, I won't say it wrecked the American economy, but it fundamentally changed it and put strains on it um, and put strains on the middle class that um, probably affected the psychology quite a bit. And people become scared, and they became scared of all the cultural changes going on, and so they gravitate towards what's safe and secure. And at the time, that happened to be Richard Nixon and, um, and the Republican establishment. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's the thing about Nixon, though, is that when you look back, uh, you know, at the political history, what was it, the 72 election, um, you know, because everyone always thinks of Nixon, they think of impeachment, and they think of this, like, disgraceful exit, but Nixon won re-election, like, overwhelmingly, like, he crushed in, like, 70, was it 72, am I remembering? 72, McGovern only won one state, right? and that was Massachusetts. That was it. Um, Yeah, oh, he was crushed. Um, yeah, I mean, and I was a kid in the 60s, but I, I was reasonably politically aware. And and um, I think the feeling was in 68, 69, 70, and, and the culture would keep expanding. And, um, and by that, I mean, it would, it would, it would, the consciousness would keep expanding. People would become more open-minded and more adventurous. And um, and uh, and there would be you know more opportunity for people and and um, a greater sense of equality and equality of opportunity. Exactly the opposite happened. The culture contracted um, in, a, in a really profound way. And and did you? I mean, did growing up in the South because you were in in North Carolina, and so mm-hmm. what part of North Carolina were you in? Um, I was in Eastern North Carolina. Tobacco country in a couple of different small towns until I was thirteen, and and then we moved to um, Cary, which is right outside of Raleigh. Okay, okay, and so that gives you like an even, um, uh, you know, uh, like I guess we'd say a, a distinctly southern window onto all these things that were happening socially um, during that era. But I mean, what was it? What was it like there for you as a kid? You know, like what kind of towns were you in? Like were they pretty? Yeah. Were they pretty conservative towns? And and um, you know, similar to maybe North Dallas in some ways, or is it? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the the town we lived in from when I when I was from the age of seven to thirteen, when I was seven to thirteen, was a mid-sized tobacco town called Kinston, and in eastern North Carolina. And um, I mean, you know, there's a schizophrenia in in Southern life, that kind of Southern life, in that. On the one hand, life is very segregated, but on the other hand, it's very integrated. I mean, certain aspects of life, um, you know, blacks are on one side, one side of the tracks, whites are on the other. But there's an incredible amount of mixing. Right. And um, that, that, and that doesn't happen in the north as much. Right. You know. Right. And so there's um, I don't know, as a kid. Just trying to tap into the emotional sense of it, like the memory of the emotion, um, I was really troubled by it. It made me uneasy. 
And um, and I think from an early age, I was trying to project myself into that other life, maybe as a means of assuaging like some some in, inchoate sense of guilt or as a protective mechanism. Um, but there was just this sense that something was profoundly wrong. And, um, and I mean, there was real poverty in the South in those days. I mean, desperate poverty. I mean, you know, you would, you would ride outside of town a little ways out into the countryside and there would be sharecropper shacks and kids running around naked. And, um, I mean, desperately poor. And, um, and kids being impressionable the way they are, at least, you know, my sense of it is it made a deep impression on me. Um, uh, I remember my sisters, you know, during the times of integration, they would come down in the morning and, and, and um, well, not so much integration, just, but just there was a lot of, of tension in the South in those days. And my sisters would come down and they'd say, well, I had the most, I had a terrible nightmare last night that the blacks were riding and that they were, they were, they were coming down our street and they started breaking into the house. And at the time, you know, I'm a kid, I just shrug, you know, whatever. But now I look back on those, on, on, you know, the small episodes and I think, you know, wow, people were really feeling it. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, I was, I was in seventh grade when the schools integrated in Kinston. And um, I remember the first day, all the white kids standing on one side of the basketball court and all the black kids standing on the other side of the basketball court. And I think everybody was scared of everybody else. (laughs) And so, but as soon as we got thrown into the classroom, it was cool. Um, uh, You know, it sounds corny, but everybody really did get along. And maybe we were thrown together at an early enough age. We were tender enough and uh, impressionable enough that um, that we could make it work. Whereas my sister, who was in ninth grade, there were terrible riots at her school. And um, so, where, uh, where did your where did your folks stand on all this? Like, what what was the family situation? You know, like what were you... yeah. My well, I mean, my parents. Um, they were both school people. My dad was president of the community college in Kinston, and my mom was a music teacher in the public schools. And uh, we were a public school family all the way. And um, and my parents were very progressive. Um, they were, um, you know, they were middle of the road Southern liberals. Um, um, and uh, uh, you know, they believed integration had to come. It was the right thing to do. Um, but they approached it with, I would say, you know, reasonable trepidations and uncertainties. Like, is it going to work? And and what problems are going to arise? But um, but uh, you know, we kind of rode out that year, and um, and my dad was was offered a, a new job in Raleigh at the end of that year, and one of the factors in him taking that job was well, we'll get out of this very tense situation, and um, we'll move to Raleigh, and um, and where things are, you know, quite a bit calmer, and um, and you know, so in a way, it was it was, I won't say it was an easy out, but it was an out. Right. 
Right. So um, just to like, you know, to try to bring this thing full circle, like in terms of, uh, you know, how Billy Lynn got started, uh, how the writing of it originated, all these different uh, big themes that you that we've been discussing that you've been turning over in your mind. Um, it begs the question, you know, after all of this, you know, now that the book is making its way out into the world. Um, do you feel like you've arrived anywhere? Did the writing of the book take you someplace or do you feel like you still hold as many questions as you started with? Um, no, I, I, I still hold as many questions as I started with. Maybe, maybe I've, I've made a start toward framing the questions. Um, but, uh, I don't know. It, It came out of a sense of several things, a number of things. Um, this sense that the country has has really um, uh, headed off into a desperately wrong direction since 1980, and you see the consequences of it everywhere. And the generations that are coming of age now, um, say anybody from 30 years old younger, I think they are really screwed. I think this society has done done them. I mean, what is being done to those generations is really criminal and immoral. And, um, and what specifically? And, what specifically do you mean? Okay, what specifically? Um, I mean, just take education. Um, I mean, the public schools in so many parts of the country are a disaster, and um, and a big reason there there. Uh, their disaster is because not enough money is being um, sent that way. And then you look at higher education in this country and um, the cost of it and the fact that that so many people have to take on um, substantial debt to get those four years of college. I think it's criminal. I mean, I'm with um, Huey Long on this, the, the you know, the rabble-rousing governor of Louisiana, he said, I think education should be cheap for those who can afford it and free for those who can't. And um, once I asked my dad, I said, well, look, I mean, he, he was against student loans from the beginning. Um, in the 1970s, he was appointed to a commission in North Carolina. Well, we're going to study student loans. And he came out against it. He said, all that's going to do is raise tuition and put people in debt. Well, they, they kicked him off the commission. They didn't want to hear that. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, the argument is, well, I mean, the, the standard argument is, well, you know, these kids, what they're doing when they're taking out these loans, they're investing in their futures because all the studies show you'll earn X amount more money over the course of your career with a college education and without. And to me, that sounded like, well, okay, yeah, that's it. And so I put it to my dad. He said they've got it backwards. Society should be investing in the young people, um, and the way the economy will really grow and the society will really thrive is if people get get a superior education, high school and college, and come out of it debt-free um, so that they can go in the directions they want to, they can be creative, they can be entrepreneurial, and... Um, go out and buy houses and buy cars and not be saddled with tremendous debt. Right. Yeah, no, and it's like, you know, I forget where I'm drawing this, but like I 
it's just basic common sense to me that like uh, you know when it comes to the free market and it comes to um you know the kind of fundamentalism that can tend to surround uh that concept you know that like everything's got to adhere to the free market it drives me a little crazy because i think there are aspects of the free market that are wonderful i think a lot of things should operate you know more or less according to those principles and i'm not like an economic expert either uh so i don't want to overstate my case but it just seems to me that certain things in the world should not uh, you know should not be for profit like well, why did do, why does education and healthcare like those are the two big ones in my mind it's like it seems a little bit perverse to me that like we would make these things all about making money when it should be about um you know people being well and people getting educated and society uh, benefiting from those things. Well, I think, yeah, I think for the, I mean, I think we, we need to look at, at, at the long term here instead of the short and medium term. And if a society is going to thrive, if a society is going to survive, much less thrive, um, you have to have an educated population and you have to have a healthy population. And you can't have one-sixth of your population um, without access to good health care or health insurance and expect to thrive. And you can't have a population where one-fourth of ninth graders drop out of high school before they graduate. I mean, that model cannot be sustained. And so all the free market um, evangelicals out there who, who um, think that, you know, the free market model is the answer to everything – I mean, I think they they have a real challenge trying to answer, um, you know, those two aspects of of the free market approach. Well, and it's also it's like you say too. It's like if those things happen, if uh, if people are educated and people are well, it's actually going to ultimately probably be better for people economically. You know, at every level of the um, of every level of the spectrum or whatever. Oh, absolutely. I mean. And, you know, all these people who are coming out of college with huge debt, um, at some point they look around and they think, well, what kind of stake do I have in the system? If the system blows up and goes to hell, well, then there goes my $200,000 in debt. I don't have to worry about it. So let it burn. Right. Let it go down. Right. I mean, because... I mean, what comes after may be, may be worse, but it may be better for me. I mean, there's this thing out there called the social contract. And um, for people to buy into society, they have to feel like they're getting something back. And if you saddle 22-year-olds with $200,000 of debt and a, and a lousy job market, um, you know, you're going to have a lot of disaffected, alienated people out there. That's right. That's right. Well, um, I want to make sure we talk about your writing career because, uh, you know, and, and the way you came to be where you are now because it's, a, it's an interesting story. I know it's gotten um, some press, you know, and like a, the, the Malcolm Gladwell piece in particular in The New Yorker, um, you know, I'm sure you've talked about many times. But I think my listeners would love to hear uh, at least the short version of how you got started as a writer, uh, how you wrote, you know, wrote and published your first story collection uh, and so on. Um, well, I practiced law for five years and decided that, um, I mean, I came to this slow, um, but, um, inexorable realization, I guess, that 
I was never going to have any peace in my in myself if I didn't make a serious attempt to um, to speak to write to be a writer. And um, I guess it was a powerful thing in me because um, eventually I did quit practicing law and started writing. And um, and I don't know, late bloomer, which is the phrase Malcolm Gladwell used. I mean, to me, that's a polite term for slow learner because, man, I was on the slow train. Um, it took me years and years and years, and I went down so many false paths, um, wrong turns. Um, and, you know, maybe I would have developed faster. Maybe it would have saved me some years if I had gone the MFA route or if I had um, made a real effort to find the right kind of, you know, um, writing group, or at least a couple of of um, you know readers out there whose judgment I could trust, but for whatever reason I didn't. And um, uh, you know, I, re- I I was I wrote for 16 years before I got a, got a book contract, 17 years before I got a book contract, and and by that point I'd gotten pretty zen about it all. Um, you know, all the expectations, all the illusions, all the fantasies had um, had been burned away by that point. And um, about 10 years in, um, I had to really look at why I was doing this. Well, I was going to say, because like, I mean, like, it begs questions. Like, how, how were you able to do it? You're, so your wife was working, and you were at home working on basically apprenticing to become a fiction writer. Is, is that- yeah, she's a... She, um, she was on her way to building a very successful career as a lawyer. Um, she's a very smart woman. And I was a house husband. I was running the house and taking care of the kids and trying to figure out how to write. And um, so we had that part of it worked out. I mean, I wasn't um, – I mean, I was I was so much luckier in, um, in this very basic way than a lot of people who aspire to write, and that was um, I didn't have to worry about the money. I mean, well, everybody has to worry about money, but um, I had a smart wife, and and we had an arrangement that was working, and um, and so I I ran the house and took care of the kids, um, but I also would get five or six hours a day to to write, and so I was very lucky in that respect. Um, and then, what did that do? Like, you know, for you. Um, you know, you leave this law practice and especially in a culture like Dallas, you know, but really anywhere, like you've got this, you've got this sort of identity as a lawyer and you're working within this, uh, you know, sort of, a societally approved infrastructure and, mm-hmm. then, and then you leave that and you're sort of floating and you have nothing to, sh- you know, nothing tangible to show for it in a way that like, you know, uh, the non-writer or the, you know, the quote-unquote ordinary person could make sense of? You know, did you find you well, find yourself struggling with that? Right, and, I, and I'm really glad for the chance to, to talk about that because, I mean, if there are people out there, you know, who are listening who who aspire to do this kind of work, I mean, that's going to be part of the challenge. I mean, if you're going to do this kind of work or try to do this kind of work, it's kind of like being a, a crustacean without a shell. <laughs> I mean, because... You, you are psychologically speaking, you are naked in this culture. You don't have that external scaffolding, that that like corporate or institutional identity that gives you psychological cover in this culture, and that's very important in this culture. Right. And so, if you you know, 
I mean, around your family, around your friends, around strangers. You're kind of this creature that's in limbo, and um, they really don't know what to make of you. And and um, and unless and until you have some measure of success, um, uh, you know, you aren't validated. You're, um, you know, you're you're this thing without standing. And um, and to me, the psychological burden of that was very real, and I expect it's it's real for a lot of people. Well, no, who, yeah. I mean, did you feel? Because I mean, I understand that. I mean, and I, I feel like a lot of writers I know feel that way. I, it's a, it's not something that gets articulated enough. You know what I'm saying? Right. I agree, and 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 so I want to articulate it, and and I want to I want to, um, you know, my my sense of it is, is is the burden of that is a real burden. And um, and to the extent, you know, practicing writers out there are feeling it, I would say, are feeling it and suffering from it, I would say, well, you're suffering honestly, because this culture puts such a premium on, on where you fit in, um, in the corporate structure or the institutional structure. And if your identity doesn't have that kind of... Um, that kind of scaffolding, then um, then you're really out there kind of floating naked on your own. And, you know, but there's something sort of, uh, you know, at the same time, there's something sort of uh, liberating about not being beholden to that infrastructure. You know what I'm saying? Like that, Absolutely. Here, cause you Absolutely. T- like, you know, I'll have conversations with friends of mine who have uh, these big corporate jobs and they'll bemoan uh, the rigors of that, you know, and sort of envy some of the freedoms that I have. And then I'll find myself sometimes, uh, envying, you know, the, the certainty of the paycheck and the benefits and, you know, all the different things that come along with, uh, you know, and I guess you have to put certainty in quotes. (laughs) Right. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, and let's talk about that in just a second, but, but, you know, I would encourage people, you know, practicing writers, aspiring writers to think of it this way. You guys are the Indians, the Native Americans, who didn't go on the reservation. You're off the reservation. You're out there running wild and free, which comes with a lot of challenges and a lot of risks. But there's also something wonderful and glorious about it. And take pride in it and take pleasure in it. You know, as far as, you know, opting for for the corporate life, it used to be in American life, if you sold your soul, you got something for it. Like you got benefits and you got a secure career and you got a secure retirement. These days you can sell your, sell your soul and the only thing you're sure of is, is, well, you aren't even sure of having a job by the end of the week. And so my feeling is um, why sell your soul for so little? You might as well go do what you want to do. Right. It goes fast, too. Life goes fast, you know? Yep. So, um, Brief Encounters with Che Guevara, you know, you, and, and I also, you know, uh, Haiti, you know, these, uh, Haiti figures uh, largely into your life, and I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about um, those experiences and then, uh, you know, how the first story collection came together. Um, I started going to Haiti in 1991. I'd started writing in 1988, and um, and why Haiti? Like, what what? Yeah, drew you? yeah. Well, it's a good question. I still haven't um, uh, figured out a satisfactory answer for that. Um, 
I don't know, you know, these these impulses, these instincts or 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 things come along in your life. I'm, I don't know. It's like, why do you fall in love with one person and not the other? Um, you know, why why go to Haiti instead of Mexico or, you know, Morocco? I don't know, but it just always had an attraction for me. And, um, and, uh, and I conceived of a story set there and then a novel. And so then I decided, well, I've got to go. And so I started going. Um, but, you know, part of me, maybe there was this sense of to be the kind of writer I want to be, the kind of writer I hope to be, I needed to go to a hard place like that and try to understand it. I needed to at least grapple with that side of reality, that side of existence. And, um, and so I started going and, uh, and so I wrote this novel. It never got published. Um, but I continued to go because by then I was connected. Um, I, I had a number of close relationships down there and, um, and also, I, I just I wanted to keep up. Um, I felt like I had a stake in the place. So I just continued to go. It, um, it, it seems like Haiti is unique. I mean, in some ways, seems unique that way. People who go there feel a stake. I don't know. Not everybody. But it seems like I hear that a lot, or I've read a lot about that, especially in the aftermath of the earthquake and everything, that people go down there and it gets its hooks into you. you know? Yeah. Well, first of all, there's the intellectual challenge of... of um, what confluence of forces, historical, economic, and, and, and otherwise, bring a country to this point where it's such a basket case? I mean, why is Haiti, you know, so bad? Why is it in such bad shape? And so, I mean, just intellectually, there's, there's a lot there to grapple with, a lot that's very relevant um, uh, to contemporary life. And, you know, then it's, it's got a culture like no place else in the world. I mean, this, this incredibly um, vibrant mix of, of um, you know, African, French, Spanish, English, Native American. Um, I mean, it, it all gets mixed together in this amazingly um, rich stew. And, uh, and, yeah, it gets its hooks in you. Mm. And so... You started writing. You wrote the novel that uh, that ultimately was not published, and then you uh, were, you know, eventually pub- started publishing short fiction. Yeah, yeah. I was publishing short fiction. I mean, I'd been writing a year when I sold my first two stories, and um, and uh, part of me thought, oh wow, this is great. This is going to be easy. But <laughs> um, but I continued at the level of the small obscure literary magazine for, I mean, a good twelve years. And um, and there was a stretch of four years there where I didn't get anything published. Um, and uh, but I don't know. After um, I've been writing about ten years when it seemed like the work turned a corner and it started to please me. Um, at, you know, certain aspects of it. Um, it was still terrible, but. Um, every once in a while, there was something decent and worthwhile in it. And um, and in 2000, I sold a story to Harper's and um, and got my agent that way. And um, and over the course of like by 2003, 2004, I'd written all the stories that ended up going 
going into brief encounters. And we tried to sell the collection. We made it to the final cut at a bunch of places, but nobody would, nobody would pull the trigger. So we just pulled it in for a couple of years. And, um, and my feeling at that point was, it's not my time. When my time comes around, it'll be my time. I mean, like I said, I'd gotten pretty zen about it all. And I knew I was doing good work at that point. And I thought, well, um, you know, we'll just pull the manuscript in. I'm going to keep on writing. And um, it'll probably happen when we aren't trying. And that's exactly what happened. I had a story published in Paris Review, thanks to Ben Ryder Howe and Bridget Hughes. And, um, and Will Blythe saw it, and he um, gave it to a friend of his at Harper's, and uh, Harper Collins, and um, they asked for the manuscript. And it sold in about a week. And, you know, we weren't trying. And um, uh, I don't know. It's like, it's like sometimes when you, when you let go, when you aren't clenching so hard, it has a weird way of coming to you. It's like the Buddha. Are you Buddhist? Do you do? It sounds like you've got some sort of Buddhist thing going on here. This is making a lot. Well, of sense. <laughs> I think maybe to maintain my sanity, I had to I had to come to something like that. I mean, I, I haven't done any formal studying, but um, I think it was either get zen or go crazy. Right. Well, no, it's, it's a, it seems like a very smart strategy. And so, um, in in the aftermath, I mean, the book won the the Penn Hemingway. And it had a lot of success, uh, you know, especially for a story collection. You can't ask for much more. Um, and then you were working on, after that, um, a book called The Texas Itch. Is that correct? Yes. And so talk about, you know, briefly about that. Like, what happened with that book? Yeah. I had started The Texas Itch, or earlier incarnation of it, like in the 90s. And I would work on it on and off. And... um I started it at a time, you know, when I was a very different writer from when I picked it up again in 2004 and 2005. And, um, and uh, I knew it was flawed. I knew it had problems. But I also felt like there was a lot of good stuff in it. And I thought, well, if, you know, maybe it, it's not an A, maybe it's a B. But... um a B is still pretty good, and I've put a lot of years into it. And maybe if I put just six more months into it, which became a year, and then 18 months, and then two years. But if I just work on a little bit longer, I'll get over the hump, we'll publish it, and then I'll move on to the next thing. And um, Lee Boudreau and I, we went, we went through several rounds of revisions and, and you know, big changes in it. And finally, she... She said, you know, I, I'm not going to publish this. It's just not good enough, and I think you can do much better. And, um, and it didn't have anything to do with market situation or whether, she, you know, Echo felt like they could sell it, et cetera, et cetera. It was for all the best reasons. I mean, she felt like artistically it just wasn't good enough. And, um, and, uh, and she's holding you to a pretty high standard, I would imagine. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I felt like, you know, my my feeling was, oh, Lee, you know, please don't hold me to such a high standard. I mean, um, uh, it's okay with me if I get a couple of, you know, you know, B efforts out there. I mean, 
as long as there's still plenty of good stuff going on in them. But um, but she disagreed, and and um, so that was a decision I had to accept. Now, did you? Yeah, I mean, like, it, it, with the benefit of hindsight, do you think that it was a good call? Did it did it push you into writing at a higher level? Um, you know, with Billy Lynn, or do you look back on it and say, well, you know, maybe someday I'll I'll publish it still. You know, <laughs> um, I don't know. I I have I have mixed feelings and mixed thoughts about it still. Um, I trust her judgment a lot. She's a great editor in, um, in every way. And, uh, um, but by the same token, I felt like there was a lot good in that book. Um, but I'm not interested in going back to it anytime soon. I'm, I'm more interested in working on new things. And what are you, are you working on something now? Or are you sort of in this like, uh, you know, launch cycle for, for the new one? No, I'm working, um, I sent in the last revisions to Billy Lynn in mid-January, and it was on a Friday. And then on Monday, I started this new thing. I mean, I wasn't tired, and um, and uh, I was interested. In, I wanted to do this new thing. I've been thinking about it for a while, and um, and I thought, well, why not? I mean, I'm much happier when I'm working um, than when I'm not working, and so I. Th- thought, well, maybe it'll be a long, short story or something like a novella, but it seems to be turning into um, into uh, like a real novel. It's meta- so it's we'll meta- see what happens. It's metastasizing. You can't stop it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's okay. Well, Ben, I, uh, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this. This has been such a fun conversation and... Uh, you know, I'm, I congratulate you on the new book and all the accolades that it's getting, and I wish you all the best with its launch and with uh, with the, the new book that you're working on now. Well, I really appreciate it, Brad. It's it's been a pleasure talking to you, and and um, uh, again, I, I do appreciate the opportunity to talk. Okay, you guys, there you have it. That's the program. That is Ben Fountain for the hour. Uh, what a fun conversation! Go get his book called Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. It's available now from Echo. Uh, ben is not on the internet, as far as I can tell. He has no Twitter account. He has no official website, nor a Facebook presence, unless I'm mistaken. Uh, but I find that kind of refreshing and possibly instructive. This show, uh, in Counterpoint, it does have a website, otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And thanks once again to the UCLA Extension Writers Program. That is our sponsor today. If you are a creative writer or an aspiring creative writer of some sort, if you have a novel or a collection of short stories or you're working on a script uh, of some kind and you want some, uh, some tutelage, some instruction, if you want some, uh, some structure around your efforts, you want some kind of assistance or some friendship uh, among writers, go sign up for a class. You can attend right here in Los Angeles in person or remotely via the internet. Either way is perfectly fine, and there's no time like the present to get started. For more information, call 310-825-9415. That's 310-825-9415. Uh, you can also visit them on the web at uclaextension.edu slash writers or check them out on Facebook and the Twitter. Uh, that's all I've got for now, folks. My subconscious mind appears to be empty. 
and uh, appears right now to be operating in a state of blissful equilibrium, a state of profound silence. Please remember that Alice B. Toklas outlived Gertrude Stein by 21 years and that Wordsworth, Byron, Shelley, and Schopenhauer all had illegitimate daughters. I will be back again soon with another episode, another podcast, another conversation with another author. Thank you for listening. I do appreciate it. Thank you for letting me live in a small, strange corner of your subconscious mind. I will try my best not to haunt your dreams.